Leading the rebellion from the corporate nine to five. You are now listening to the Maniac Mentor Monday Motivation Podcast. Asking the difference between leadership and control is like asking the difference between an orange and a ballpoint pen. <laughs> Why would you even compare these things? What's fascinating to me, you know, what we often think mentoring really is, um, it's cloning, right? This is your Maniac Mentor Monday Motivational Podcast with your wonderful, beautiful hosts, Matt Aponte and Jeffrey Wood. Well, this is episode 73, and uh, we have um, a a really good, I'm going to keep this intro really short because we have a great guest on the show today, and um, his name is Ron Carucci, uh, TED Talk, uh, best-selling app, Amazon author, um, all that good stuff. And and so we're going to be talking about a lot of great things um, in today's podcast, Um, and uh, he's on the line. We don't want to keep him waiting. So with that said, let's get going. Visit ManiacMentor.com and connect on Instagram at ManiacMentor. All right. Well, like I said, we are really excited uh, for this episode because we have a special guest on the line. Um, is Ron Carucci. And uh, Ron, thanks so much for being on the call with us. And if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to put together a nice little intro for you here uh, that I have written out. Now, Ron... You know, he is a best-selling author of eight books, and he is a popular contributor at the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He's an expert on a number of topics, including the journey from startup to scale-up of a young business, leading massive transformation in more mature organizations, uh, advice on rising through an organization from middle management to executive leadership and more. Uh, and, and I'm not done yet. He's, he's also led a 10-year longitudinal study on executive transition to find out why more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of appointment and uncovering the four differentiating capabilities that set successful leaders apart. So if you're a leader, you definitely, um, or if you're a CEO of a company or whatnot, you definitely need to look that up and there'll be links in the podcast uh, notes below. Um, And, uh, you know, these findings were also highlighted in his groundbreaking Amazon number one book, Rising to Power, co-authored with Eric Hansen. And uh, these findings were also summarized by Ron in the popular Harvard Business Review article. And that link also is going to be able to be found below in the show notes. And uh, Harvard Business Review also selected that research as one of 2016 uh, ideas that matter most. So welcome to the Maniac Mentor podcast, Ron Carucci. Welcome, Ron. Hey, man, Jeff. So great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, you know giving making some time to be on our show. We're uh, we're definitely uh, uh, feel privileged. <laughs> so um, yeah, we uh, Jeff. I'm going to hand this over to you. Uh, as everybody knows, who's been longtime listeners, Jeff is the researcher here, and um, you know I've I've done enough research on Ron to know that yeah, I want him on the show. Yeah, uh, but Jeff is the <laughs> Jeff is the real deep diver, and uh, he he's the interviewer guy. So go ahead and uh, and take it away for us, Jeff. I love it. Well, it's great to have you on, Ron, and and for our audience, we're just thrilled to get to share. This gentleman with you, Mr. Ron Carucci, he exists up in rarefied air being a researcher. So he's got his hands on 
objective information that I believe can benefit you as both a business leader and entrepreneur and any other role of leadership that you have in life, even if you're a football coach or something to that effect, we're just yeah. really, really excited to go ahead and pick his brain, climb the side of the mountain, get up there in the clouds with him where he exists. And uh, especially being, you know, rubbing elbows with Harvard people. That's pretty exciting, huh, Ron? There's a bunch of smart people up there in Boston, that's for sure. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well, we are going to start off by asking about your history, okay? And I don't mean, you know, well, I was born in 19... No. You know, not, not, not all the way <laughs> that far back. But we do want to know a little bit about your history and where did you go to college? Uh, tell us about your background and then kind of transition over into how you got where you are right now. Yeah. Um... So I, you know, I had a, a very interesting twist of uh, education and career um, in my early formative years, uh, back last century. Um, so I began my career and my training in the arts um, and discovered quickly that I bored easily. <laughs> All my friends in New York were, you know, green with envy for the jobs I was getting. I'd be murmuring to myself in shame I have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long? <laughs> yes. So I switched um, education of venues. I was in New York City. I, so I left Juilliard and went down to NYU. And even that for a while was uh, a little bit monotony was still occurring to me. And I'd been working in the arts since I had been 10. So it wasn't a new thing for me anymore. The magic had worn off. And I think I quickly realized this was probably not going to be uh, something I could sustain energy for, for 50 more years. So I left New York um, and took a job with a, a company that used arts and media and a variety of um, content sources to both entertain, but also teach. And I was spent about three years overseas in the military. And we had contracts with the State Department and the military to do a variety of programs for them. And um, at one point, we were in Dachau. Uh, and, I, and of all places, in the chapel at Dachau. And back in that day, they didn't have the term diversity and inclusion, but I had they had that term, that's what this program would have been titled. And we had East Germans and West Germans and military and civilians and Americans and uh, German nationals in the room trying to talk about dealing with differences, trying to talk about how could they work <laughs> together. Her Iron Curtain had not yet fallen. And so this was a very mm -hmm. difficult season of... of objectification and hatred and um, looking at other humans as good or evil. Yeah. And in the middle of our program, a young soldier, probably not much older than I, raised his hand and in a very raw and, and vulnerable place said, I, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. Yeah. And I, like many, like many others in the room, was, uh, was a bit undone by that. My first very you know, ego, yeah. egocentric thought was, wow, something I did up here made him think that? <laughs> uh. <laughs> But I, I was stunned and I wanted to know more. And so afterwards, you know, you're in Munich, so you go out for beer. That's what you do. And <laughs> we, I, wanted to know, I wanted to understand how he was provoked to think that. And I think that was the beginning of a, of a real fundamental shift in my career. To, you know, I, I, I think I, learned, I knew that telling great stories was interesting. It, you know, it was paid the bills. It was, a, it was a good, noble thing to do. But when I got to engage in other people's stories and help them tell their own story or discover their own story in a new way, th that was thrilling. That was inspiring. That was never going to be the same every day. And that was probably a better fit for my career. 
Hmm. And so that began the pivot to um, a background in organizational psychology. I did start, I did start my, my grad work in clinical psychology. And then I realized I don't really want to deal with people's crap. <laughs> so I switched to organizational psychology only to discover they all bring their crap to work with them. <laughs> now, I get it yeah. now I get it in mass instead of individual. I just get it all at once. <laughs> just, a, just a lot of crap. <laughs> a lot of crap. Um, as I'm sure many of your listeners would attest to in their own organizations. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's been my journey for the last 20, 30 years. I did, I did discover early on that, you, you know, I, I was trained to do this work from inside of a larger organization. And I found out that, um, you know, there is, a, there is truth to the old adage that you can't be a prophet in your own land. Yes, and I did discover that, you know, doing this from the inside um, <clears throat> helped me build up my collection of severance packages um, and realized, you know, probably and what and, and what got me in trouble inside got me paid well outside. So I finally took the hint and decided this would if I was going to be able to live out my expression and express my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. Um, hmm. So stepped outside of organizations to be able to build my own uh, with some good friends of mine. Uh, and we now get to, you know, live out our, our love and passion for organizations and communities at scale um, uh, as a partner to them. Mm. So when you did your graduate work and you got out of there, can you name some of the companies and, and, and what it was that you were, what were you doing? Were you, as an organizational psychologist, what, what were you doing? You were coming into a company and, and analyzing their staff or no. what did you do? What was yeah. the work? Organization development. You know, it's interesting. Back then it was sort of an, a, a, a burgeoning field. People didn't really know what OD was. It sounded like voodoo. Mm-hmm. But now OD is a really common field. Lots of practitioners are entering the field. It's basically understanding how systems work, right? So it's plan change. How it is an organization move from point A to point B structurally, culturally, um, often at the individual level. So for leaders to understand how, how people are leading, uh, it, it is a, a huge, OD encompasses a huge set of disciplines. Um, uh-huh. and the, you know, the, the challenges inside a company um, are plentiful. There's no shortage of opportunity to change. Yeah. So, um, the pro- and, and, there's, and there's great work for, individual practitioners inside companies to do, and they can make contributions. But back then, it was still an unknown field. It's only really, you know, mushroomed in the last 15 or so years. Before that, it was still rising, and there's there's still plenty of opportunity to evolve the field. But so this notion of telling the truth and being honest and getting, you know, and making people face hard data about their organizations and their limitations, um, for some people, that's very threatening. For some people... Um, outsiders have a better chance of saying that in a way that can be heard than insiders do. Mm, yeah. yeah. So it's a consultant role yeah. you were playing then. Would you agree with that? You're uh, sort of a consultant. Is that how the, you yeah, were hired yeah. on as a consultant? Yeah, that's what, yeah. Navalin is a consulting firm. So. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's you. I'm going to interject here real quick. You made a point, you know, me being, um, you know, the, the founder and CEO of my own company, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, it would be easier for somebody on the outside to come in and, and give me the hard data and facts, uh, especially if I'm the one that invited them or hired them rather than, you know, somebody from the inside, you know, saying, hey, you need to change this and you need to change that. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how that perspective 
you know, completely changes the the ability to accept, uh, you know, some kind of hard hard uh, facts there. Well, and you know, now my clients expect it, right? My clients pay pay well and are grateful. They they recognize that inside their organizations, they don't have access to the truth. Data they mm. get is filtered. Data they get is spun, curated. Um, they, get told, they get told, yeah, they get told what they want to hear. Yeah, having a source of unbridled um, objective truth for them to make able to make better decisions and have honest looks at what's happening. They're grateful for that, right? Yeah, it's just there's no political risk for me in bringing it to them. There's an integrity risk if I don't bring it to them. Yeah, very cool. A little bit more on your background. Uh, now you're a published author. Would you talk about what was the, what was the subject of your very first book that you published, and and was that sort of the springboard that got you into doing public talks? Um, you know, so <laughs> I'd always wanted to write. Um, mm. I, for me, was a way to learn, and for many of my many of my clients um uh they have you know they face persistent intractable problems and i had no way of going to learn about those so i have credible thoughts for them so for me writing and digging up stuff was what to do that um my mentor she's still my mentor and friend in fact in my second in my second ted talk i tell the story of her uh um and her writing my first book with me trying to help me find my voice and help me find my way another way of influencing in the world um, it started out as a book about leaders who gorge on change fads. Uh, uh, hmm. And our agent said to us, you know, no, I mean, this is a dime a dozen people. No leader's going to want to be told, you know, don't, they don't, they shouldn't do this. Why don't you aim the book at your peers? <laughs> yeah. I said, but oh. you're even more deaf. Um, and so we're like, no, we don't really want to write to our peers. It's a, who cares? But this was at a time when the consulting industry was getting a well-deserved public bashing. We had books called Consulting Demons and oh. Consulting Consulting is Insulting and Witch Doctors, you know, all these products <sighs> talking about an industry that grew up very fast. It was a very young industry. You know, it's only about 30 years old or so, the advice business, and, uh, and the exploitation of that and how much money um, it was making for not adding a whole lot of value. And so... Uh. Uh, okay, well, we said to our agent, go ahead and try and pitch it to publishers and see if they would want that angle. We had three offers in a week. Mm. Huh. Wow. <laughs> and our point was, okay, bashing's over. We get it. We've done a few things wrong here. We're not that, we're not perfect. But my gosh, people are still paying for advice. There must be yeah. something valuable. There must be something amidst all that crap that we do <laughs> that people want that is important to them and a vehicle by which leaders inside organizations can acquire new knowledge, new insights, new perspectives more quickly than they can get inside uh, and make greater impact. And so we did a huge research study on uh, understanding the connection between consultants and the leaders that consume their help to find out what was it that we were doing that was actually helpful. We don't need, we don't need one more book or one more article or one more, you know, gun pointed at our head saying, you guys suck. We, we yeah. get it. And so uh, that was my, that was our, my first foray into writing and understanding how to publish. And it was called the value creating consultant, uh, how to build and sustain lasting client relationships and come to find out that actually it's the relationship itself. It's the connection um, that in fact is the most valuable part because it's the mechanism that creates transformation, right? It's the yeah. conduit through which, my perspective, my hard truth, my insights get translated into your world. Wow. 
So does that mean if it, in that, in that function that you would, for example, be asking these uh, sort of concerning questions toward the, the staff in an organization that mean you would sit down with each one of those people when you, let's say you're consulting for an advertising firm or something that's hemorrhaging money and <laughs> they may not be looking for you to financially fix them, but they know that they've got a staffing problem. They've got something going on in the leadership. And so they bring you in and then do you, do you sort of start at the, if you will, the bottom of the staff and start asking them those, those questions to make them feel important and let them kind of speak. Is that what you're saying? It kind of make a connection? Well, our, well, so our diagnostic work, ultimately it's that leader of the firm that's going to have to make the hard decisions. But our diagnostic mm-hmm. work, um, it, you know, we call it our MRI. We definitely get forensically d- deep. And our, our sample might be 20 or 30 people. It depends on the size of the firm. But yeah, well, it's a, a broad swath of the organization we're going to talk to. Um, because people will tell us things they'll never tell you. Um, yeah. we, have a, we have software that codes that data in a pretty scientific way to get a, get a sense for systemic patterns that are there that can explain, you know, re- results and behavior that you don't want. Um, we tell our clients from the beginning, you are perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. So if you're hemorrhaging cash, it's because you're designed to hemorrhage cash. Ha. Huh. And, <laughs> and I like that. We'll find out why. Now you may tell me, Oh, I know what the problem is. It's we have a bad, we don't have a good CRM in our sales front. So I know what the problem is. Our sales force isn't true. You'll, you'll give me some symptom you believe, to be the problem, which of course in my head I already know is not the, the root cause because A, you've been hammering at that for a year and nothing's happened. So it's likely it's not the root cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's some, a bunch of other factors you've missed. Um, and so we, we take a much broader swath of the organization to look systemically at culture, people, systems, processes, governance, structure, um, you know, work design, uh, strategy. Uh, being the most prominent one. And of course, in the startup world, and you know, where most of your audience comes from, you yeah. know, the major, almost predictable like clockwork dilemmas we find is that uh, when I, and I'm working with a bunch of startups now that this proves to be true, um, that when I ask you, okay, tell me your strategy. Tell me why you're here. I get the mission statement, the vision statement. I get the product quota. I get the, the, the last week's orders. I get a whole bunch of counterfeits. But when I ask you, tell me why the customers you're trying to attract would choose you over anybody else, you can't tell me that. Mm-hmm. And so the fundamental questions of identity, of differentiation, of what swim lane you're going to win in, um, they don't, entrepreneurs always think, well, that's for big companies. It's one of the biggest <laughs> mistakes startups make is they think uh, that the strategy is not for them. And so they, they put a vision and mission statement together for their funders. They put it in their business plan so they can get somebody's money, but they have no idea who they really are. They have no idea why anybody is coming to their front door and, and God forbid they've gotten some great wind at their back and they've got, you know, Costco ordered something or Walmart called. That's the strategy now. Um, <laughs> and, and so now they feel this G force of capacity drain. You walk in, you hear that you watch the, it's like ants on an anthill running around like mayhem. And they think it's all good. They think we thrive on this energy. Everybody matters. And they're mm. fooling yeah. themselves into thinking that this is actually sustainable. And they so confuse growth with scale. Wow. And, yeah. and at some point they just hit the wall. And we, we, I mean, you, you guys have heard the story 10 times more than I've heard it. You know, it's, yeah. it's so cliche and you can see it coming a year away. 
But yep. so many entrepreneurs are not prepared to understand how to say no, how to focus their organizations, and how to, how to build a disciplined strategy and build an organization that can – an organization is nothing more than an embodiment of a strategy. If, I, if you show me your organization, I don't mean just being your org charts, I mean how you've got your work set up, I should be able to detect what your strategy is. And so many, so many entrepreneurs just bolt people on, you know, they, they express with great pride, we've gone from 20 people to 100 people in six months. I'm like, you should be ashamed of that, not proud of it. <laughs> wow. So, um, a long yeah. answer to your question about, you know, my writing, but. No, that's a good one, Ron. You know, I, I, um, you're absolutely right there. And, and I'm just speaking from experience. It, it's probably, if I had to put a time limit on it, it probably took me five years to realize, uh, you know, that, to, to, to know that saying no to clients and to certain, you know, industries or niches is the most powerful thing. And it's one of the, the best things that's ever going to grow your company. Um, being focused and focusing on less rather than more. Uh, so that way you're more productive. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and like you said, when you're, when you're an entrepreneur and you're first starting out, you're just kind of like, we'll take everything. If somebody wants to pay us, you know, to, to do this, we're going to do it. And, and you, you kind of, really um, gauge your success on that, you know, with your ability to be able to, you know, people to come, hey, do you do this? Do you do that? Do you do this? And and you do everything. And then what ends up happening is, is that you become a jack of all trades and you're doing everything, but not really anything at all. And one day, you know, you're no different than anybody else on your street. And so you're, you find yourself you know, fighting for the scraps that are left on the table. Um, and it took me a long time to figure that out. And uh, if I'm being completely honest, it's not within the, the the last year is when I've really been able to iron that out and and just focus that down. And one of the books actually that really helped me was um, the uh, the Blue Water Strategy or the Blue Ocean Strategy. Um, and uh, Boy, since you know we put that into into action, literally have have grown, uh, doubled everything, you know, and and like you said too, you know, as far as growing the staff, it's it's uh, one of the things that I've learned. Just just you know, I didn't have a someone like you to be able to come in and kind of tell us what we needed. Just had all to be done through you know hard knocks and trials and errors and failure, um, you know, but. We're growing our team now. Now we're uh, we're at uh, almost we're actually nine, uh, including myself. But it took a while to get there because you know just bringing hey we grew a hundred people like you said that's you know that's horrible you know you you got so many people why do you need that many people you need the right kind of people you don't need a lot of people you need the right kind of people and so that's where we're at right now is really just hand selecting the ones um, and putting together. I, me personally, for my business, I'm building a team of extremely capable people who are so much better at what they do uh, than I could ever be. And so, you know, they're being put in, you know, strategic areas. And because the way I see it for my business personally is, is that, you know, we're part of a, a rowing team, right? And we want to we want to win the championship and we want to be the best, uh, you know, the best team. But everybody knows how to row their their part um, and everybody needs to be an expert. Everybody needs to be good. But, you know, we can't all row in the same place on the boat. And so that's kind of my whole 
strategy of what I'm, you know, putting together now. And um, so far, it's it's working wonderfully. So I can I can really uh, attest to to what it is that you're saying there, just from my own experience with my, my building my own company. Well, the, the hardest thing for most, to, you know, to to borrow your rowing metaphor, Matt, the hardest thing for most entrepreneurs to realize is that they're the coxswain, right? Yes. Only mm. one on the boat, not rowing. Yep. Uh, and and <laughs> one of the most important jobs to keep the boat rowing in sync. And most entrepreneurs don't know how to stop working in the business long enough to work on the business. Yes. They, they don't, they, they, they convince themselves of their own indispensability by convincing themselves that if I don't do it, it won't get done right. Or if I don't do it, it can't be done. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. letting go so that you can scale and grow, um, not just grow. Yep. Is, it's, a, it's a painful discovery for most entrepreneurs. The sad thing is we now know, we know, this is not like some mis mysterious secret, you know, we've, we still haven't cracked the code on, um, but you have too many <laughs> capitalists and private equity firms doubling out money um, to you know, charming, winsome individuals or good-looking individuals or people who invite them to those, you know, Palo Alto sex parties. <laughs> or, gosh, this seems like a novel new app. Yeah. Really, and, or, or now that, and they'll say we, 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 have a, we have a leadership capital partner in our firm, like so that they claim to be doing some assessment of the leadership health of the startup they're thinking about funding, and that's great. But for the most part, um, they're, they're not being entrepreneurs are not being taught yeah. those fundamental disciplines of strategy, organization, and leadership. If they were uh, early on, um, we probably would see the failure rate of startups plummet. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, one of those things. I think you know, being an entrepreneur is you you have to be stubborn, right? You have to be a, a little bit of a little arrogant. You have to be stubborn. You got to think that you know it all. At least that's how I was when I first started. And, um, How'd that work you know, out for you? Yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't. <laughs> and and it, it wasn't until I realized that, you know, I was, uh, I was a dick that, you know, I, I'm like, hey, I can't do it all. I'm not capable of this. And I earned, you know, or learned some sort of humility when it comes to entrepreneurialism. It wasn't until then, until I started to grow. Um, and, and like you said, you know, being the cockswing of the, of the boat, I, I, it happened to me. And actually we talked about it, this Jeff in a past episode mm -hmm. of, of, you know, I had this realization of like, you know, what is my, uh, core genius? And, and, and even though I could do, can do everything in the company that, you know, we, we sell to our clients, my core genius is, is being that coxswing essentially is 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 being able to manage a team, finding out who is great at what and putting them in that position so that way they flourish, or you know, uh, being able to look out ahead of the ship, so to speak, if you want to use that, and navigate the waters ahead, and then just kind of guide everybody behind you so that way you can successfully navigate. And so whenever I I claimed that and I let go of everything else and said you know, I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to control that. I will be out here in front just helping everybody. Uh, every, everything changed. And, um, but it took, it took so much. It took so many people, you know, telling me that I was wrong and, and, and failed businesses and, and relationships. 
it took a lot of that. Well, I think one of the challenges, Matt, is that the the mythology you said before, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be arrogant, you have to be overly self-confident, you got to believe you know it all. What if we could just say to all entrepreneur schools about to graduate people saying, hey, this whole thing where you think you know it all, you're confident in yourself, you, your idea is going to be the next Uber or the next Airbnb. Let's, let's pretend it's 18 months from now. We've skipped past that. You've gotten over yourself. You recognize you're not, you're not all that in a bag of chips. Let's get on with actually doing the real work. Let's skip mm. the carnage and go right on to just growing up. Yep. Huh. Well, there's a contrast there. And that is that, you know, Matt and I, our leadership style is, it, it's almost an opposite. Because for me, my style of leadership was always to be a little bit more of a pushover. Yeah. Now, whether that's leadership in management over people, because I've been a manager or <clears throat> leadership in training people, just kind of let them run wild, let them be who they are. Um, like the, you know, free range parenting, so to speak, you know, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> leadership, that doesn't work out so well either. And I have learned over the past year, as Matt, as Matt has toned himself down in one direction, I have cranked up the volume a little bit more in the other direction. And knowing that, you know, people are going to respect you more if you will be just a little bit more assertive, which is, it doesn't come naturally to me. I hate confrontation, always have. And so with that in mind, I kind of wanted to get into the connections thing because Matt and I do have something really big in common. We both connect with people. And I liked in your, in the big TED talk that I saw with you, how you talked about that there are, there's power when you talked about power. You said there's power in our human mm. connections. And yeah. one of the things that really uh, touched me deeply was when you gave an analogy of, of a teacher speaking to a classroom. I may, I may not be quoting this exactly correctly, but you said something to the effect of the, the teacher is going to be more effective if they're getting a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with each one of the students, asking them important questions, waiting for the answer, and then responding with a little bit of uh, amorous, you know, like, wow, that must have been so amazing. How were you able to do that? I'd like you to speak to that subject matter a little bit more, how there's power and connections and, and asking those questions that validate the person you're in leadership over. You know, Jeff, it's interesting when you talked about your own leadership and your own reluctance to assert and your own reluctance to, um, you know, declare. Um, yeah. and, and that was one of the biggest surprises in the research. I think I mentioned it in the TED Talk that we, we, when we studied power in leaders, we assumed we would find the Harvey Weinsteins, you know, all the um, <laughs> self-indulgent abuses of power self, you know, for, the, for the personal or immoral gain uh, abuses. And those were certainly there. But that was by far not the biggest abuse of power. The mm -hmm. greatest abuse of power by far was the abandonment of it. <sighs> People wow. looking to use their power. Um, and people don't realize that that's as much of an abuse of power as self-interest is. When you allow those you're leading to, 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 um, to, to uh, wander aimlessly, to, um, be, to feel rudderless, to not feel led, it's every bit as destructive to your organization as if you're on the take. Um, mm. So people discovering their power and being confident to use it, people, people wanting to embrace the power and the risk, that comes with their leadership roles, that for us was a bigger challenge. Um, and so uh, we, we discovered three sources of power to your, to your point, to your question, you know, which was relationships, information, and connection, uh, and um, position. And one of the most under-leveraged 
um, aspects of power every leader has available to them is gratitude. Hmm. It is, it is it. the single psychologically proven single greatest forces of influence uh, in an organization and, and most underused. And mo where most people, leaders take it is to compliments, right? So they think if I give you an attaboy or girls, that's gratitude. And of course, if you ask, whenever I, I speak, I ask my audience the question, how many of you have ever received a compliment from somebody and been offended by it? <laughs> Everybody raises their hand, right? Everybody, we've, yeah. We've all yeah. received some well-intended, backhanded whatever that somebody meant well to make us feel good and made us feel terrible. And the core reason why most you know, failed attempts to say thank you uh, go south is because you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, you have okay. no idea what you're saying thank you for and what it took for me to do it. Um, so you haven't earned your right to say thanks because you didn't ask what it required of me. And one of the most powerful, powerful, validating, confidence-building, um, purpose-driving <coughs> questions a leader can ask for is ask for the story. Yes. When someone on yeah. your team has done something extraordinary, whether it's extraordinary to you or not, if it's extraordinary to them, you'll see it. Ask them, tell me how you did it. Tell me what it was like for yeah. you. Where did you struggle? What was hard? What'd you learn? What are you most proud of? Um, what would you do differently if you had the chance? Um, what can others benefit and learn from, from what you did? Ask for the story and then learn from the story. And that 18 minutes or 22 minutes or whatever it would take for them to give you the story that you listen to intently, that you take notes on, that you get mm -hmm. engaged with, that you're impressed by, only validates them and only makes them feel stronger and more powerful and makes them want to go do it again. Yeah. And we're always just too busy, right? We want to pass in the hall, do the high five, you know, ver proverbial, you know, back pat or pat on the butt or whatever you do. <laughs> Yeah. I like that one personally. Think, it's it runs in the family. We so yeah right. The we pat think, on the butt. <laughs> we we think I did my, I check off my leadership box. I've acknowledged their work. I made them feel good. Yeah. Going about my day. Wow. Just um, it's we just squandered completely squandered uh, an incredible opportunity to build somebody up to to extend the capability of our communities and our organizations and to and to you know. Raise the odds that the great success somebody had is one they're actually going to repeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I remember listening to that in the in the TED talks, and and I thought that was really profound. Just asking and listening, and that's that's, uh, admittedly, that's something that I I need to work on as well myself. And you know, um, I'm a good listener, but uh, not so much always a good asker and then listener. So that's that that was a really good point for me. Oh, the art of asking the right questions. And, uh, and you know, Matt, I know he said, take notes and I, ding, I know you heard the bell go off, right? <laughs> Every time somebody talks about, write it down, take notes, grab yep. your pen and paper. I'm really about that. I, I'm, I'm very visceral. I mean, I like going back and seeing it, you know, in real life in front of me. And so, and that's something that I was doing, uh, and still am doing. I mean, my, my personally, my team grew. By, we're up to, I think by the end of this week, my team will have grown by 10 people in the last two months. Awesome. Now it's time for me to stop recruiting and start focusing on those people. Because every one of those people is going to, I need to find their level of dedication, their intensity, 
And Ron, you just you just gave me something for free. I'm glad I didn't get charged to have to go get this information because <laughs> this is a really great reminder on my end, and hopefully for all of our maniacs out there that they'll take note of this to ask those important questions. Ask for the story, and then she add up and let them talk. Right? Yeah. So moving on, I would like to talk about. Uh, I like you know compare, contrast, whatever. And so Ron, I wanted you to speak to the difference in your mind and and from your research difference between leadership and control. I think some people get those things muddled up. I think we're already in that sort of wheelhouse, what we're talking about right mm. now, but specifically the difference between leadership, because I would love to just control my team. Okay, make 30 phone calls today. You know, anybody that you can get on the phone, go ahead and get them on a three-way call with me, blah, 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 blah. You know, whereas leadership is really, it's going to be more me, them, them wanting to follow those directions. And really, I just move shift my weight to one side or the other and they shift their weight too it's yeah. uh it's tough well, to do that so go ahead and talk to that so um you know it's interesting uh asking the difference between leadership and control is like asking the difference between an orange and a ballpoint pen <laughs> <laughs> like, why, why would you even compare these things uh-huh um, but what's what's fascinating to me and I, and I think it speaks to the name of your show you know what we often think mentoring really is mm. um it's cloning right so hmm. really, if uh-huh. I'm just trying to control my team, what it means is I want them to do it like me. And so I'm just oh, clone yeah. myself in them, which is why so many millennials hate mentoring because it, all it feels like is you're trying to make me you. Yep. And, and you hear, hear what, 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 what often in sentence do we begin our quote unquote mentoring with? Well, if I were you, what I would do is, or when I was your age, what I did was, yeah, end of conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, the notion, and first of all, the other thing is the notion of control is just delusional. You never had it to begin with. Uh huh. Yeah. I love it. Yep. All, you do, all you're doing is self-soothing and self-comforting. Um, <laughs> yep. So true. When it's born of anxiety, when I'm trying to control because I'm anxious, we just call that we call that disaster baiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and, and all you're doing is trying to what you believe are reduce the odds of error, reduce the odds of, of, of de- deviance or departure from your way, um, and, and what you believe to be, therefore, raising the odds of success or performance outcomes. Um, none of those things are true. None of that's actually happening. It's only happening in your head. Um, what you're really doing is irritating people, making them feel insulted, making them feel valueless, making them feel like um, they don't matter, making them feel like they're just a means to your end, a pawn in your game, a cog in your wheel. Uh, and making them want to quit. And so whatever sense of control you believe you're indulging or self-soothing um, pales in comparison to the, the damage you're doing uh, to those who have who have signed up, right? If they're in your organization, they've signed up to want to commit to your, it's, odds are it's not just a paycheck they want. They want to feel like they're part of something really important. They want to feel like they're part of a, a bigger story of something meaningful to them. Um, let them. Um, and let them find their own voice and their own path. Um, that's what scaling really requires. Yeah, can, they, can, can it be a free-for-all? No. Are there, must there be repeatability and standardization and ways in which you go about scaling? Absolutely. But within that, there's got to be enough of a free range of expression, enough maneuvering room for me to put my own mark on this to make it worth my work coming to work every day. Because yeah. the biggest risk to most entrepreneurs is not that their best talent quit and, stay, quit and, and leaves, it's that their mediocre talent quit and stays. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 you want to do it all? 
have at it. Yeah. Knock yourself out. Do it all. I'm gonna sit here and troll LinkedIn and Instagram and Snapchat and porn. Uh, I mean, <laughs> whenever you come and scream at me for something, that's what I'll do that day. <laughs> and thanks for that paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And would you yeah. say the remedy to this is just sitting down with them and really being real and really asking, asking those good questions and just shut up and listen. I mean, well, would you say that's a good start at least? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an important aspect of what leadership really means. I yeah. mean, yeah, you are, requ- I mean, you're obligated to provide direction and clarity and, and the rules you have to provide the, what, what you, you gotta chalk the field for people. You have to make sure they have the skills and talent and tools and what they need to be able to succeed on sure. You have to make sure you don't waffle between priorities, right? You can't say today's crisis is this, and then tomorrow it's something new, and you can't flip between your, you know, sexy idea du jour, right? You've got to stay focused. And so there's a lot you're required to provide as the leader of others uh, so that they can succeed, certainly listening to their ideas, listening to their concerns, listening to how they feel about you as a leader, um, and honestly, not just telling you what you want to hear and listening to the aspirations they haven't yet learned to express. Part of a great mentor means I can hear in your heart and in your mind, the thing you most desire to do, even if you can't articulate it yet. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to cultivate that in you. I'm going to help you discover that. I'm going to create conditions under which you find your, the best version of yourself. Um, Because that's my job. Not because I'm such a super awesome special guy, or girl, but because that's what's required of me to do my job. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Yep. Okay, Matt, you got anything else? I'm ready to I'm ready to move them up to the to the batter's plate, man. No, that was that was great. Um yeah, let's go ahead and uh, bring this home. All right, Ron, here we go. Grab your bat, step up the home plate, tap it on there. I'm the pitcher. <laughs> and I'm throwing you a curveball, baby. All right. So all this leadership stuff sounds great. But you and I have something in common. We're both, we both have a different title. It's the title dad. So I want to ask you about parenting a strong-willed child. Uh, and does all this leadership stuff, has, all, has any of this helped you at home in parenting children? Go. As long as it's a great, I love it. It's a great question. As long as you're going to be on the floor of your office in tears and sob and, and let your heart break for your kids, yes. Because that's, that's good. What, being a, what being a dad means. Um, and I have two, you know, uh, college age kids right now who have, who are on wonderful pathways, but they were anything but linear. Um, and, um, you know, our job, our job is to become students of our children. Um, yes, we can instill standards in them and try and create a sense of character and morality and good decision-making tools, but most parents are not going to let their kids fail and accept consequences for their choices. We want to get in there and rescue them. You know, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the worst ideas we've heard uh, this year, and there's a great book coming out in June about it by a, a friend of mine. Um, we we tell them, listen to your feelings, you know, trust your gut. That's a bad idea. Yeah, sometimes I agree. Your feelings, sometimes your feelings are wrong. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is, you know, um, you know, avoid pain. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker, right? So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, try and avoid bad experiences at all costs. You don't have to suffer. Yes, you do. Um, it, yeah. life is hard and it sucks. And if it's, and, and you, you have to learn to suffer to become resilient. Um, yes. and so the best thing we can do for our kids, and I think the, the places where I've gotten it right with mine are when I've allowed them to, um, 
experience the consequences of their own choices um, and not make it all, I mean, I, I'm not going to abandon and say, screw you, you made that bad call because <laughs> how do I get them to, to learn from their mistakes? But I, I have to join them in that, but not to the point where I make it all better. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, I believe that my job is not, you know, so I grew up in a youngest of family of five. And by the time I came along, you know, my parents, my oldest brother is 20, was 21 years older than me. Um, so I was like, a, I mean, talk about an afterthought. <laughs> Whoops. I, 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 um, yeah, so I, I remember coming home in junior high school and asking my mom, uh, what, you know, when we went into biology, what a change of life baby was, and asking my mom, was I a change of life baby? She said, no, no, <laughs> the older brother Peter was the change of life baby. You were the heart attack. Mm. <laughs> I like your mom, man. That's where you got your sarcasm, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Which New York Italians. So, <laughs> I, so I was going to be the doctor. I was the one. We didn't have one of those yet. We had everything else. So I, you know, so it was this preordained thing. That's not our job as parents. Our, our our kids come hardwired with desires and skills and talents and ambitions. And my job is to create the conditions under which they get to explore those and express those and discover those, and and experiment with them and choose them. Um, not to say you can't earn a living like that, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! You're gonna be on my basement couch for forty years. You know, <laughs> but we all, every what parent doesn't isn't terror, terrified by that th- thought, right? We oh, see yeah, yeah. we've all heard it. Twenty nine is the new seventeen. <laughs> it so actually was it was seventeen for me anyway. I mean, I took an extended adolescence, and my adolescence lasted until I was twenty nine. And uh, the woman who is now my lovely wife, you know, we found out she was pregnant, and that was basically when I finally became an, a full blown adult. <laughs> until then, it was not going to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no way. Video games are still the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the primary activity du jour. Forget about getting outside and doing anything active. It's like you can sit and my fingers in a controller. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's un- and it, it is the reality. We, you know, and, and neurologically, we're seeing the science, especially for men. You know, we're mm-hmm. seeing the, the neurological delay in brain function and, and, and executive function in the um, you know, the frontal cortex is actually, it's, it's evolved, it's, it's evolved to a bigger place in the last 500 years, but it's now evolving more slowly uh, for mm. guys, uh, especially. And, you know, you were seeing more, more predominance of ADD and all of the kinds of, you know, uh, self-management functions that are not going well. And that's just, it's a reality, yeah. um, but it doesn't mean we have to indulge it and let it be okay. Right. And, and, yeah. uh, if you let it be acceptable, it becomes the new norm. Hmm. Yep. That's great. Man, Ron, that's, uh, that is so true and so profound. Um, you know, we're going to go ahead and, uh, we're going to wrap this up and kind of put a pin in it, but we really want to thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. It's been a great conversation, uh, talking with you and, and kind of going over these things and, and also getting a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a self assurance that uh, that I am uh, doing the right thing, at least kind of heading down the the right path, and all of the past years of suffering and 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 everything has been a good learning process. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so thank you so much again, Ron. If is how can um, 
I'm going to give you, you know, a minute or here to, to totally plug yourself and uh, let our listeners know how they can reach out to you. What do you want them to see? Is there a book you want them to buy, download? What, whatever it is, uh, go ahead and, and how can our, our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks for asking, guys. It's been great to be with you. It's been a fun chat. Um, come to my website, www.navalent.com. Um, and there's a bunch of great opportunities there for you. If you come to navalent.com slash transformation, we have a free ebook for you on leading transformation organizations. So a lot of the kinds of things we talked about in terms of getting change to happen are in that free ebook. Um, you can find the book Rising to Power on Amazon. You can also find a bunch of the research on our website at Rising to Power there. Um, we have a, if you want a, um, your own personal virtual summit and leading change, we built this phenomenal set of 25 interviews with with folks like Dan Pink and Dory Clark and Nilifer Merchant and Kim Scott, a phenomenal. So if you want your own personal short course in leading turbulent change, you can sign up for that there and consume that content for the next year by being part of a great cohort of other folks who are also learning to lead through turbulent change. Um, two TED Talks out there, you can find those on YouTube. Uh, a couple of other, there's a Google Talk, a couple of HBR Talks, so um, if you'd rather watch watch than read, uh, those are out there as well. Also on LinkedIn and at Twitter at at Ron Carucci. So we'd love to keep the conversation going. Stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm going to do my best to uh, get all of those links down at the show notes below. So you guys uh, shouldn't have to go digging too hard to find them. Um, but uh, thanks again, Ron. Uh, many thanks. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. And um, you know, hopefully we can, uh, in the next couple months or so, maybe we can have you back on. I'd love to. It's been great, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Nice to meet you, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. That was great, Matt. Uh, and a couple things before we go. Number one, we'd love to hear from you. So shoot us an email at podcast at maniacmentor.com. We really want to hear from you. Number two, uh, if you're not subscribed to us by now on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher Radio, and we are actually about to reach out and start on another platform. Yeah, um, we're going to be out on uh, Anchor, um, and Anchor has its own network of, uh, you know, a, a podcast there. So if you're an Anchor podcast listener, we're coming soon there too. So you'll be able to consume our episodes there. And um, uh, there's there's a couple others that uh, are in the works. I don't want to mention them right now, but um, they're, they're pretty big. So we're pretty excited. Yeah. About. Go get yourself subscribed on our current platforms and uh, just search for Maniac Mentor and then click on the subscribe button. It helps us tremendously. And remember to also leave a review because that helps us even more. Yes. And finally, you're listening to the podcast. You're getting the tips, inspiration. So your responsibility is to share this with somebody who you think might enjoy it as much as you. But as far as that goes, hey, it's called the power of reciprocity, people. Let's practice that. <laughs> All right. With that, guys, we're out of here. This was your Maniac Mentor Monday Motivational Podcast with your hosts, Matt and Jeffrey. We're Audi 5000. We hope you guys have a wonderful morning, afternoon, day, evening, whatever time of the day it is when you're listening to us. Please be blessed, stay motivated, and most of all, stay focused. We'll catch you guys on the flip side of another week. Later. Be sure and visit maniacmentor.com and follow him on Instagram at maniacmentor.